Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by our namesake, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure as always. Today, we're going back to the Stoics. Uh, obviously, we're talking about classical culture, and part, uh, I would say there's a there's a trendy movement these days upon among Silicon Valley types, Dr. Fleming. They, they may not have any religion. But they buy into the old time stoicism, and uh, there's something that seems to attract these uh, these people. Well, I th- yeah, I, you know. By the way, the, the one part of stoicism I don't think they buy would be uh, humility and poverty. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's interesting. One of the quoted letters uh, is this idea of walking around in rough clothes, eating only the meanest food, and saying, "Is this the life that I feared?" Um, and I think, uh, well, we're going to get into that, so I don't want to preempt, uh, preempt our conversation today. So we're looking at, at the Stoics, and, and you, you mentioned there the idea of being humble uh, and, and spurning wealth. But I, I, I think when, we, when we're looking at this time period, a lot of times, again, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, people get the, the wrong idea about the classical period when we're thinking about Rome, we're thinking about uh, Spartacus, gladiatorial games, abusing slaves. But there's, there's a gap between the, the sort of pagan exercises and Roman morality or Roman moral thought. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, you know, every... Every culture, you know, is complicated. For example, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to judge the quality of American Christian thinking, say, on the basis of Hollywood movies. And you know, there, there's a lot that's very wicked and depraved in our society, but that doesn't mean it's all there is. There was uh, a great collapse going on in. During the Hellenistic period, that is the period uh, in the Greek world after Alexander the Great, and in, and in the later Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire, people were torn up from their communities. They were uh, they were uh, they they tended to lead lives pursuing selfish, egotistical goals. It's very you know very much like 20th century uh, Europe and America. On the other hand, it was a period of great spiritual seeking and growth. It's a period in which people turned more and more away from traditional religious forms, what you might like, sort of like mainline Protestant churches, the the, the pagan equivalent, you know, worshiping the gods of the state. And they more and more tended to find either Religious traditions like the worship of Isis, who demanded purity and sacrifice and kindness, or, or Christianity, for that matter, which is which is now uh, beginning to be heard of in the world and during the age of Tiberius, and uh, or if they're more well-to-do, they te- they tend to begin studying one or another philosophical tradition, and it is those traditions which are shaping the mind of, of a later antiquity. They're giving it a high moral idealism, ideas about uh, our common humanity and the decency we owe to all human beings. These are beginning to be commonplace notions, and so that when Christians use such language, they can have a receptive audience. The, uh, it's often, uh, you know, if you look at movies... 
about about ancient Rome. It's you know life is just one long uh, orgy, or or people are getting thrilled by watching their fellow human beings slaughter each other in the arena, and there's truth in this. I mean we we have the portrayal of a of a kind of hilarious overdone nouveau riche banquet by, uh, by Petronius, the, his uh, banquet of Trimalchio. But on the other end, we had we certainly, the, the gladiatorial games are, are drawing huge audiences. But on the other hand, you have people who express distaste and aversion for these. Uh, the younger Seneca, Seneca says himself that uh, you can't, you shouldn't hang out with the common people too much because you might find yourself sharing their enthusiasms. For example, you might start applauding an end zone display at an NFL game. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I don't remember the the number of the letter, but I remember him talking about the fact that he he feels that uh, with all these different festivals, that it's just turned into a, a party all the time. That uh, people are always looking for excuses to wear different colored robes instead of just uh, realizing that uh, you can have normal days and be fine with it. Yeah, the the Roman calendar got as it was as bad as say the uh, medieval Catholic calendar in Rome when there there are hardly any work days left uh, on the calendar, if you take it seriously. I I had a friend in uh, who lived in Milan. He was a great uh, Catholic intellectual named Mario Marcola, and Marcola. We were walking out of the uh, the Duomo, the cathedral in Milan, which is this the one big Gothic building in Italy. And he looked out, and people were playing the accordion and dancing and drinking. And he says, uh, "Ogni giorno sempre la festa. Every day it's always party time. Sempre mm. la festa." And you could you could hear this was this was the voice of an ancient Stoic, not just the voice of a modern Catholic, because North Italians tend to disapprove of that kind of behavior, which we think of as just normal Italian life. <laughs> well, speaking of normal Italian Italian life, we did did see a a double standard in regards to marital fidelity, not just in the Romans but in the Greeks. Can you can you comment a bit more on that, Doctor Funny? Yeah, you know we uh, in the especially in the Christian West, uh, when we say so and so is moral, we usually mean that they are they are sticking to. A strict code of uh, premarital chastity and of uh, and marital fidelity. Uh, the Greeks and Romans certainly did not put uh, that kind of chastity for men very high. They put it very high for women. Uh, Doctor Johnson, one of the great Christian writers in the English tradition, defended the double standard on the grounds that a man could not introduce spurious children he couldn't put he couldn't put the cuckoos in the nest and really we we think that's just ridiculous or stupid or irrelevant uh, to the argument about whether men should are, are worse uh, when they cheat on their wives or are women worse when they cheat on their husbands because what Johnson had was a traditional understanding of marriage and marriage is an institution to present licit grandchildren, who can inherit their ancestors' property. And it's not simply affection or connubial bliss. So this was this was the attitude certainly taken by the early church. It's certainly the attitude of, of the ancient world. Having said that, standards were quite different. Now, it's true that in the Greek world, 
a man who wasted his substance on flute girls or whatever was going to be called on by his wife's brothers. And, and uh, anybody who tried to bring women into the home with him was going to be, called, was going to be uh, punished for this. Uh, anybody who seduced a married woman was going to be punished. You could kill such a man in, uh, in the Greek or the Roman world. So they did have standards, and we also know that by the time that we're talking about, by the time of the early empire, many men in tombstones and uh, letters boast of being faithful to their wives. So we know that uh, marital fidelity was becoming uh, an ideal. We, we also know from, from Greek comedy that, that men who did cheat on their wives uh, could face the wrath of a woman that, that was something they didn't wish to. But uh, yeah, there, 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 is a, there is a difference. One of the, one of the big differences between uh, pre-Christian, and this includes uh, Judaism as well as paganism, pre-Christian serious religion and, and Christianity is that Christianity is telling us constantly that the ec- observing external rules, you know, not eating meat on Friday or making sure you go to Mass every Sunday, these, or, you know, abstaining from this, fasting, all sorts of these rules, that while not unimportant, the rules are less important than what is going on in the soul of the person. And as uh, Christ says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The whole Sermon on the Mount is a series of statements saying, you have heard it said, and then quoting some tradition from the Old Testament by which you, you, you're committing a sin if you call your brother a fool or you, or you hit somebody or you kill somebody. And, he's, and Christ says over and over, you're in danger of judgment if you hate your brother it's what, or if you commit adultery in your heart. The same thing is going on in the pagan world. That is where the interior life, the conscious life, uh, the, 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 the co- consciousness of your own rectitude, of being, of being honest and honorable, uh, these, uh, these are the things that are beginning to distinguish uh, the, uh, the, the, the pagan world, that is, the people who are taking life seriously. And so what we're seeing is, although clearly Christianity represents a, full, a, a more fulfilled, higher, intense moral code, we're seeing that it also converges with the developing moral code of the pagan world. And it's interesting to see that uh, if I'm if we're if I'm following your thought, Doctor Fleming, maybe the apex in someone like Marcus Aurelius, where we're a few centuries into the development of Christianity, it's almost as if uh, the Roman world is fi- is finally preparing itself intellectually as well for Christianity, which allows for uh, the legal breakthrough of Constantine. Yes, well, you know, Mar- Marcus has uh, Marcus, of course, who is a is a Stoic thinker like Epictetus and like Seneca, whom we're going to be talking about, and all of them have this notion of consciousness of the of the upright life of living living a life in accordance, not just with a lot of "thou shalt nots," but having an inner understanding of why why uh, the upright life is the only proper way of living. And, of course, uh, uh, one of the most famous early pieces of apologetic literature is addressed to, is addressed to Marcus as a young man. That is uh, Justin Martyr's uh, uh, Apologia, which he addresses to Marcus and his stepbrother and, uh, ex- because he knows that he takes an interest in moral philosophy. 
The Christians and, and pagans, uh, for a long time, did not understand each other. Uh, one of the most sublime pagan teachers of the late antiquity, Plotinus, all he knew about Christianity is what he had picked up from some very strange Egyptian Gnostics. And he found them impudent, credulous, and dishonest. And so he interpreted Christianity as a kind of Gnosticism and an arrogance. Here's the wisdom of a thousand years, which they are uh, turning their back on in order to believe a lot of silly superstition. And his, his, uh, his great student, uh, Porphyry uh, took the same view and wrote and wrote a, a long treatise, the most important ancient treatise against Christianity. Uh, 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 some of the Christian fathers made sure it did not survive, although we, we, we know what some of the arguments are. They've been, they've been quoted. My point, though, is that if you read Porphyry's uh, letter to his wife, you, you could mistake it for an, a, a Christian, uh, a piece of Christian writing. That the, the, the convergence of uh, pagan moral thought and Christian moral thought is even in the most bitter anti-Christian of the ancient world, uh, it, it, they're, they're, he's, he, he writes and speaks like a Christian. It's it's interesting you mentioned that, Arthur, because I, I I have that feeling whenever I read or reread uh, the Meditations by by Marcus Aurelius that if I were to close my eyes and you weren't to tell me who the the author was, that there are passages that read from an aesthetic uh, you know uh, handbook of spirituality where I'm being I'm being encouraged to to not uh, take insults personally and to remember that this world is passing and to meditate upon death and to know what will come at the moment of death. Uh, you, you know, if you don't tell me who it is and you present it to me, I, that's what I might think of. I think what, what our listeners might be curious about is how do you get a Marcus Aurelius from this time period? I'm sure most of our listeners might say, Dr. Fulmer, you're talking about Caligula, Nero, those sorts of Caesars. How do we get this guy? Where did he come from? Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, first, the first emperor, Augustus, he had his faults, certainly, and he had very grave flaws as a young man. But he, he, uh, he settled down and understood that he, he and the Roman upper class had a burden. And the burden was to rule the world justly. And this, to a large extent, was shared by his more flawed successor, Tiberius. Unfortunately, um, Augustus' successors were not members of the Julian family. Uh, as he was on his mother's side, they were Claudians. And if you read uh, Livy and other ancient historians, you realize that the most arrogant, the most deeply offensive and grasping and ambitious family in a patrician family in Rome was the Claudian family. And so as bad luck would have it, you have a series of Claudians. You have uh, Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius uh, himself, and uh, and uh, and of course Nero, the last of them. However, <clears throat> once Nero is put uh, put away, you have a kind of bourgeois emperor from the sticks, Vespasian, mm-hmm. and a Vespasian son, Titus. You have a series. There, there's a bad one here or there, Domitian, but you have a from from Vespasian to the death of Marcus Aurelius, you have a series of competent, honest, humble, hardworking people who really understood that they were the servant of the law, not the master, 
and that that they had a very important job. Poor poor Marcus, he wanted to sit at home studying philosophy, and instead he had to be constantly leading troops in battle against the Germans. It is it is inspiring to read, or, or Trajan, the greatest of the soldier emperors. If you read Trajan's letters back and forth to his uh, deputy, the younger Pliny, you get an image of, of, a, of, a, of a responsible upper class that took its job very seriously. They knew how to enjoy life, but they were the, at the opposite of what you might expect from a, from a bad movie like Gladiator. <laughs> so one of the things uh, that when I get into these discussions, Stephen, with people, they'll say, well, uh, how can you say that there's a Greek religious morality? Look at how badly the gods behave in Homer. Look at how badly uh, some of the Greek heroes, I mean, Achilles sulking in his tent when he, should be, uh, when he should be paying attention to higher things. And the answer is, uh, we're talking about a period around 800 B.C. We're to, at, a, at, a, at a tribal level. The Greeks have all the genius that they'll ever have again, but, they have, you know, but, the, but they're, they're, they're in a state of moral evolution. 800 years later, Greeks and Romans... Have uh, have a different kind of uh, of uh, moral outlook. They understand that just because you just because you go twenty miles, it doesn't mean that the people down the road are your enemy. It doesn't mean you get to kill them and rob them the way Odysseus does all through uh, all through the Odyssey. And so this this notion of the brotherhood of man is very much uh, the development uh, of of this period. Now, speaking, speaking of uh, the evil Emperor Nero, it is also true that, Nero's, uh, that, that the first five years of Nero's reign, the so-called quinquennium, was viewed as a, were viewed as a golden age in the history of Rome. He had two principal advisors. One was a military man named Burrus, who advised him on military and foreign affairs and various aspects of statecraft. And then he had his, his uh, tutor, Seneca, uh, Spanish-born, uh, and uh, from, the, you know, ge- from the gentry, not from the highest aristocracy, but a, a great student of philosophy. And between the two of them, they showed that uh, an empire could be run by men with a sense and probity. And so it is... It, it, it shows that even under Nero, if, you're, if, if a ruler is surrounded by, uh, by honorable and wise advisors, the, the, world is, uh, the world can be fairly well run. You know, and when Nero died, there was, for years afterward, there were rumors that he was still alive. He was still spotted in Argentina or whatever. Uh, and the reason for that is that he was actually, among the common people, he was popular because he provided good government. Not he but his good advisors. It was only the people who knew him that had to be uh, terrified. Mm. Now, tell us a little bit more about Seneca himself, Dr. Fleming, because some people may know that Seneca was actually quite uh, wealthy and powerful, but here he is writing these letters about Stoicism. How do we reconcile the two? The Seneca was a... Uh, he was born in the, uh, in the, in the provinces... He, uh, you know, to a, uh, a, a well-to-do Spanish family. His, uh, they were Italian colonists. They weren't, uh, they weren't Spanish. 
Um, his half brother, his brother rather, full brother, was adopted and changed his name to uh, Junius Gallio, a name that may be uh, familiar to people who have read the Acts of the Apostles. He went to Rome and he studied philosophy and he was taken up by the royal family, that is, uh, uh, under Claudius. And Claudius, of course, marries his niece, which was forbidden by Roman law, his niece Agrippina. And uh, his reward for this is that Agrippina poisons him, and has, him has him killed so that her son Nero can ascend to the throne. But he was the equivalent of the prime minister throughout much of, un, until he was forced to commit suicide, uh, under much of uh, Nero's reign. Unfortunately, when his colleague Boris died, uh, the, the, the center of power began to shift, and he was exposed. He tried, to, he had made quite a lot of money, and uh, had great, we had wealthy estates. He gave it all to Nero. But it was not enough. I mean, Nero ended up having him, uh, forcing him to, to commit suicide. Now, stoic suicides are an interesting thing because uh, if most, uh, most serious Catholics will say anybody who kills himself, it's an act of despair, it's a sin against the, the, the Holy Ghost. A stoic suicide is rather, uh, in, in, in Rome is rather different. Because of your honorable behavior... You, uh, they're going. To, the emperor has decided you have to die. Now, if he executes you, all your family, all your property is gone. Your family loses its citizenship rights, and they they're plunged into poverty. The only way you can save your family from from this disgrace is to write a will, giving half your property to the emperor, and then uh, doing the right thing. That is, drinking uh, poison or opening your, your wrists. It's not an act of despair at all. It's an act of, uh, of, of love for those who have depended on you. So he had, he had uh, as big a career as uh, you could have in, in the early empire. He was, as pow- he was the most powerful man in terms of practical power in the world. He writes. Uh, he wrote a number of things. He wrote. Most people think that most of the tragedies that come under his name are actually written by him. In late in life, he wrote a, a book of uh, of sort of science, popular science, and but his most famous works are uh, on moral themes. He wrote some. He wrote moral essays, like his essay on anger. He and he wrote. Uh, a series of letters to his friend Lucilius uh, advising him on how to live. And so it's these letters that, uh, that, beca- that became extremely popular because they're practical exercises in morality. Now, everything we've talked about so far, Dr. Fleming, I think most people would say, okay, uh, what stoicism sounds quite compatible with Christianity but where are where is the divergence? Where does Stoicism, apart obviously the of your explanation with suicide, where does it not quite uh, jive with Christianity's message? Because all all of the aesthetic uh, practices uh, certainly make sense. Yeah, I'll, let me give you the uh, the baseball card uh, history of Stoicism and and draw some of this out. 
Stoicism was a, a, a school developed by Zeno. Zeno is not apparently a Greek, but came from Cyprus and probably from a wealthy Phoenician family, although by then they'd been Hellenized and, uh, and certainly spoke Greek. He got shipwrecked and ended up in Athens and read a, read, uh, Xenophon's memorabilia. That is his reminiscences of Socrates and decided he wanted to be another Socrates. He studied under the cynics. He understood cynics are people who try to teach you that most of what you believe turns out to be wrong. You can't trust your senses. You can't trust tradition. You, you have to strip away all these illusions. And, uh, but he also studied, uh, Aristotle, obviously. And much of Stoic thought is rooted in Aristotle. And the, 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 the thing that ties Stoicism to Christianity, in addition to its ethics, which are which are very close sometimes, is the Stoic notion of uh, natural law, of living according to nature. Now, Aristotle had uh, pointed out that there were principles of justice that were consistent with human nature and that could be found everywhere. This is what he calls natural justice, and it is not it is not quite what say uh, the, the Stoics will understand as natural law and certainly nothing like what is understood as natural right or natural law today. But it's, he says it's like, it's like being, Aristotle says, natural justice is like being right-handed. It's a tendency that exists everywhere, but it's not complete. It's only, only approximate. For the Stoics, nature was everything. And this is, on the one hand, it leads to their sublime conception of, 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 of a, of a, of a moral law in nature that is just as just as binding as the as the laws of thermodynamics or the law of gravity. On the other hand, they did not certainly have any notion in a transcendent God who out of nothing had created the universe. For the Stoics, there is a divine force in nature and this divine force is more or less material. It's a very subtle material, but it is, it is material. And that it's, it's implicit in everything. So they're pantheists. There's a divine force within, you know, within flowers and leaves and rocks. You know, it's like energy. And part of this, of course, is, the, is what uh, imparts our moral sense to us. Now, on the one hand, this means that as St. Paul tells the Athenians, you know, you have the evidence of nature to tell you that God exists, and you have the evidence in the human heart about, uh, to, can tell you right from law, wrong. So th- that's, they, they share that. The Stoics share that notion with Christians. On the other hand, the idea of a personal God, you know, a God who is, a, is an actual, ha- has, has a persona or a Christianity Three persons. The idea of a personal God, or a God that could take on human form, but even a God who cr- could create the universe, or could step outside the material universe, this to them uh, was entirely wrong. And Plato here comes c- much closer to Christianity, because Plato believed in an absolute goodness that was prior to, and you know, takes precedence over the material world. So uh, there, it, it used to be said by some um, uh, 
Catholic theology teachers that the Church drew its metaphysics from Plato and Aristotle and its ethical teachings from the Stoics. And that is, of course, not quite true because Aristotle is probably as important to the uh, to Christian ethics as the Stoics are, but it still gives you a rough idea about the relationship. And and as I said, Dr. Fleming, where would we see this divergence? Well, the divergence begins, of course, with their idea, uh, first of all, with the, the, their, their, their concept of God. Another, uh, in early Stoicism, uh, they had contempt for the good, the good things of this world. For example, a, a Stoic would not have made a very good uh, soldier, a very good statesman or citizen. They didn't much care about family life. It was, it was a rather monastic philosophical creed. detached from the world entirely. And um, it tended to appeal to a rather small minority of people. And Zeno himself was a a wretched writer. The fragments we have are not not well written. And uh, he didn't think it was important to write well. He thought clearly, but he he was a slovenly writer. And the Stoics in general didn't have much use for rhetoric, or a careful exposition, uh, at least the early ones. Later on, this changes. When the Romans begin to meet these people, especially in the circle of the Scipios, the family that basically won the Second and Third Punic Wars with, with Carthage, in the circle at, gathered around the Scipios, there were a number of Stoic thinkers, especially Panetius, and they, they tried to adapt this rigorous, austere, monastic philosophy to the Roman world. Because for the Roman, his family, his ancestors, and the, Romans, and the Roman commonwealth, this, these, these things took precedence over you know, your, your individual concerns, over your individual needs. And so Roman Stoicism... Whether uh, whether the philosopher is a is a real Roman or just a Greek living in Italy, Roman Stoicism becomes much more practical and civic minded. It teaches people, you know, how to live within uh, within this world and how to be uh, how to be a good father, a good husband, a good a good neighbor, and a good uh, fellow citizen. One of the, the most uh, striking things about uh, Roman Stoicism is how it helps to shape their vision of Romanitas, of Romanness. There was a, a, a after, after Panetius, there's a, a Stoic thinker named Posidonius. And it's, uh, I don't want to get into academic quibbles because there are people who argue that what I'm about to say is not true. But the traditional view is that Posidonius by using Stoic philosophy, taught the Romans that they, had a mess, that they had a mission. And their mission was to take the civilization that the Greeks had created and to extend it throughout the world under the protection of Roman law and Roman civic order. And when, when Virgil, at the beginning of the Aeneid, you know, says to, to, uh, to humble the proud and, and defend the weak and, and spare those who are defeated, when he says, this is this Roman, this is your destiny, uh, this, St. Augustine makes fun of this, but it's clear Augustine also shares 
exactly that view. That's what the empire exists for, to take to take the civilization which the Greeks had created, to defend it, to spread it, and to infuse it with these principles of a, of a universal law. And this this was the gift. It, 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 at least it's believed by, I think, most scholars, this was the gift of Stoic philosophy. Now, because the Stoic, because these Roman Stoics took uh, an interest, and such a strong interest, in the Roman Commonwealth, in the res publica, the, 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 people's, the people's business, they, uh, they believed in the rule of law, and they had no use for dictators, tyrants, and, and, and lawless and reckless leadership. So their view, uh, their view of uh, creatures like uh, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, they took a very dim view. And they, the Roman aristocrats within the Senate, were attracted to this civic-minded Stoicism, and they formed a little clique. Uh, in, in which they did their best to preserve Republican virtue uh, against, against this rising tide of, of tyranny and abuse of power. And of course, the result is that under Nero and then later, uh, many of them were put to death. Many very famous uh, Stoics like, uh, th- like uh, Thrasiopitus uh, were, uh, were, as Seneca was, were, were condemned to die because of their adherence to uh, Republican principles and insistence that they, they, they lived under a rule of law, not simply a, the arbitrary uh, decisions of a despot. Now, one of the, three, one of the things which these, which these Stoic senators really objected very strongly to was the uh, presumption of several emperors that they that they that they were gods or had to be treated as gods. Now this is a, this is a, this is a somewhat complex thing because you know uh, Augustus allowed himself to be revered as a god outside of Italy, not within Italy, because it was a Hellenistic tradition that a great ruler was also a hero, and a hero is not quite a god; he's more like our notion of a saint. That, that it, or you know, just as Oedipus and Oedipus at Colonus is a is a hero because wherever he's buried, he will have power to help the people in that neighborhood. So the great men who had been benefactors, in fact, their word is savior. Often, a man who's been a soter, a savior, is revered after death because he's beloved by the gods and he will be able to help protect his commonwealth. And it was that was the idea. Uh, for Augustus and Tiberius allowing themselves to be given divine honors. However, when you got to spoil punks like Caligula and Nero, they took this quite seriously. At least they, they pretended to. Caligula would, you know, built a built a, a passageway from his palace over to the uh, to the temple the uh, temple of Jupiter, the Capitoline Jupiter, and so he, so he could go and talk with his brother gods uh, and. You can imagine uh, the feeling of Caligula and Nero if some stoic senatorial wise guy said, you're just a human being like the rest of us. You're not, you're not different. This was not appreciated, and it's one of the things that caused them to be put to death. Of course, there was one other group that made themselves very unpopular by refusing to worship the emperor. And what, 
what what religious sect was that, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> the, the one who we remember in the Roman martyrology every day. Yes, exactly. So and and but you know it's not it's not that the emperors were all bloodthirsty and insane. It's not that the Roman judicial system had a had a thing against Christianity. It's not that they were driven by demonic forces, but that rather periodically a somebody would begin to take these 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 claims to divinity seriously as as Domitian did. Now, whether Domitian, and it's usually the ones with, uh, with uh, sort of mental problems. Domitian felt himself very inferior to his father, Dispasian, and his brother, Titus, and did everything he could to, to hurt their reputations when they were dead. And, but he w- insisted upon being treated as a, uh, as a god. And, uh, it was, and there is evidence that, within his, that, he had a, that he had cousins, you know, in, in his own family, uh, Flavius Sabinus, among other people who are who are regarded as martyrs uh, that were were killed at that time. But so Sto- Stoics and Christians were picked on, and usually, if you hear in ancient history, like so and so made war on the philosophers, what they what they really mean by philosophers is is the Stoics. And so, although obviously in basic the basic metaphysics and theology there are huge differences. Uh, between uh, Stoics and Christians, and even though the early Greek Stoics themselves tended to be rather standoffish about the rest of the human race, by the time of the by the time of Seneca and the Roman Stoics, uh, friendship, charity, humanity these all become the watchwords of the Stoic movement, and it sounds an awful like the preaching of uh, Paul and Peter. On, on the necessity of uh, of caritas of dear of uh, of dearness uh, of uh, agape, the the one of the things that we sh- we we'll, we've talked a little bit about in the past, and I hope to talk in the, in the future, is that most most Christian ethical writing in the past five or six hundred years has emphasized uh, rational principles. You know, and that's especially true in modern natural law theory. What you read in the Gospels and in the the epistles of both Paul and Peter, what you uh, and in and in James, what you read about is love and friendship, and that the disciples called each other friends and brothers, and it was not a philosophical movement based on Kantian logic. It was a movement of the heart, and it was the heart that had to be stirred. And I think I don't want to get sound sappy, but but it is it is friendship is the basis of the Christian moral life. You know uh, what what, what the, the the we're we're told this by John. What 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 greater thing can a man do than to lay down his life for his friends? That is, Christ regarded his disciples as his friends, not as followers, but as friends. Well, Dr. Fleming, is there anything else? Obviously, this is part one of a two-part series on the Stoics. I think you wanted in this part to make sure that people understood the school of thought and and a bit of history about them. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we close out today's episode? Just just this, that that the Stoics gave to, uh, first of all, to the Roman world and to Roman law, and then to Christianity and to Christian thought, 
two overridingly important ideas. The first was the idea of natural law, that there is a coherent body of principles within nature, not just accessible to reason, which they are, but they are actually in nature, and that that, com- that require us to behave in a certain way toward our fellow men and to regard them as, as, as fellow human beings, not as slaves, not as, not as animals, but that they have to be treated with compassion and humanity, even if we own them. And the second is the notion of duty, which we might talk about a little bit more next time. But the Stoics believe that in every sphere of life, there was that which was incumbent upon you, to kathekon, as they called it. And it, 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 goes, it, it, it starts with Aristotle, but they articulated uh, perhaps the first important philosophy based on duty. And that's a philosophy that really does need to be recovered these days. I think that's a good place for us to end. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that Christianity and Classical Culture is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thank you to our Gold and Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time, and until next episode, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.